Welcome to an At The Flick show we recorded some time ago. In the show, the At The Flicks team spoke to director Mark Brown and producer Laura Reese about their film Dead On The Vine, which, at the time of recording, had recently finished principal photography. The editing stage was about to begin and we all agreed that it would be best to hold the show back until Dead On The Vine was nearing release. Well, we are now excited to tell you that the completed film is to get its world premiere at Kevin Smith's Smodcastle Film Festival this November. We have been privileged to view part of the film and can tell you this is going to be a winner. Cast iron. Watch out for it at a festival near you shortly. That's Dead on the Vine, one to add to your film watching calendar. And now over to our interview recorded just after Christmas New Year lockdown in 2021. Hello and welcome to a very special interview from your At The Flicks team. Graham and Neil and Jeff here with Mark Brown and Laura Reese. Hi. Hello. Hi, how are you doing? Now, a couple of months ago, we spoke to Phil Hain and Tim Wilrich about Harmony, which is shortly to start filming in Gloucestershire. Mark was the scriptwriter for that. Talk about that a little bit later on. But for the purposes of this interview, what we're mainly going to be talking about is a film that was made during lockdown called Dead on the Vine, which Mark and Laura directed and produced. What is tonight? It's a wine tasting. Well, they're always fun. Fancy place. Where are we going to go? I don't know. But I don't think it's a good idea to stay here. I've never been to a wine tasting. Good. You will know when you've drunk one of ours. You'll talk about it as if it's a good friend. Yeah. I like to make new friends. Before we start talking about that, how was your wonderful lockdown Christmas? <laughs> um, it was. It was interesting. I, I, you know, we were ready to literally out the door on the way to my mum's house to be one of the three households and uh yeah the news came in and uh it was like take your coats off kids we are we are staying here with the same people we've been hanging out with for weeks and weeks and weeks and we're gonna do the same thing as we've been doing we, we made the best of it we had a nice christmas day and a nice new year's eve when my david serenaded the entire neighborhood with his bagpipes david from guardian <laughs> yes we'll talk about that later <laughs> it was all right i mean I, I missed my family and that was very sad um i was very angry at the government for being absolutely rubbish um but otherwise <laughs> all good yeah i think that's a common uh, feeling right now i had a lovely yeah. time we were very lazy and didn't have to drive anywhere yeah it's just crazy and uh, hopefully that's the only christmas we'll ever have to spend like that so let's start talking about films and i know we've mentioned it in the previous podcast when we spoke to both Phil and Tim, but could you remind us and tell us a little bit about Brainhound Productions? What's the story behind the production company? Brainhound is mine and Phil's company that we set up a long time ago to make short films with. It's um, <laughs> it was, the name comes from Phil, just basically reversed our first letters, Hain and Brown into Brain and Hound. For gone on to make, I think. It's like 20 plus short films and our first feature a few years back, Guardians, and now Phil's trying to get the second one in the can. Yeah, it's gathering speed. Unfortunately, lockdown's come at the wrong time for you, hasn't it, really? Yeah, for that particular project, it's been a real hindrance. Dead in the Vine, it's actually been a help to us in many ways, but <laughs> with Harmony, it kind of killed it a bit, yeah. Fingers crossed for you that that gets up and running this year. For yourself, though, obviously, as well as being behind Brainhound, you're, uh, you have four films as director. Three of those you've written. One you didn't, which was your first short, The Claustrophobic, A Political Life. How did you become involved in that project? <laughs> it was just a little sort of happenstance, you know, just a man making the best of a, of a tragic circumstance. It was basically Mike, who's the star of it and the writer, Mike Shepard, he'd just broken up with his girlfriend and they were living together in this big flat in Shepherd's Bush. 
which became empty. Obviously, his girlfriend had cleared all the stuff out, and he was but he was clearing his stuff out. And he's like, "Mate, I've written a script. Do you want to direct it?" So I read it. I loved it, and I was like, "Yeah, okay, let's do that." So basically, I went over the next day with um, Jack Baldwin, the actor, and Mike and Fred Fournier, and my brother Jonathan Brown, and we just we shot it like in an evening. Yeah, it's what I class as my first directorial film, really. I did, I'd done some other no-budget shorts that I'd shot in, like, an hour and stuff. But this, I felt like, because it was someone else's script, I had to really think about it. It felt like a real directorial thing for me. And, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a weird little thing, but I but I, I love it, yeah. If you were given the opportunity to direct another script which you didn't write, would you do it? I mean, it depends on the script. But, um, yeah, if I connected to it, if I liked the writer or the people involved, and it was something that I felt like I could do. I mean, it's not it's not something that is like top of my list, but I would definitely do it because I I enjoy directing and directing other people's scripts. In in theatre, I I directed quite a lot of other people's scripts, and they were more satisfying to me than directing my own stuff. I'd definitely give it a crack. Uh, one thing with a political life, which is, as it says, it's an allegory on a political life, and the whole thing is is very empty, and there's this fear of the baggage of politics when was it made mark 2011 was it i think long time oh yeah almost it's 10th anniversary in fact i remember those days when we had political parties that you couldn't tell apart (laughs) (laughs) the ambivalence and the weird nihilistic emptiness is all still there i feel but uh yeah (laughs) a bit different different 10 years down the line and mike mike shepherd will be mentioning a few times throughout this because he's been involved in in a few of your projects what is it about mike's work that you like me and mike have always connected on the on the slightly absurd level you know of uh bit abstract bit um unusual interpreting life through a uh through a slightly different prism not everyone seems to get it and understand it. you know some people are utterly baffled by uh a political life me and mike have done a lot of sketch comedy together and a lot of kind of um short form theater mostly comic stuff yeah, some of it can be a bit uh, hard to fathom if you're if you're not on our wavelength. Well, we'll talk about that with Stained coming up very <laughs> shortly. Laura, question for you: You you were producer on Colette a few years ago, and that starred a young Holiday Granger. What was that project like to work on? Oh, it was a great film. Uh, the director Nicola Morris was amazing. Um, the character that Holiday played was brilliant. Lots of depth, and and she was great to work with fantastic actress and also just a lot of good fun and very very hard working so it was quite nice it was a lovely little project actually and looked beautiful so yeah I enjoyed it a lot I must admit the first thing I ever saw her in was that uh, Bonnie and Clyde and uh, it was a bit of a shock to me to find out that she was British yeah I know she's great she's uh, very adaptable yeah she's also done some really good radio plays as well yeah no that's right yeah yeah I like her voice yes yeah. Yes, he does have a very good voice. It's nice. Again, I haven't seen that film, but uh, that does sound uh, absolutely fascinating. Next up for you, Mark, was uh, you co-directed Corinthian with usual composer Frederick uh, Fournier. It sounds like a very tough movie on the subject of beer knuckle boxing. What was that like to film, and how did you approach the action scenes? Um, it was actually fairly easy mainly because we shot it at half speed, so the action was fairly easy to uh, choreograph because it was like doing it in slow motion. And we only shot it in one day, basically did the end scene in the morning and then the rest of it for the rest of the day. I had a real good time on that. Again, it was a real step up from a political life because we actually had something resembling a budget and real equipment and a crew. So I was kind of just testing myself to see if I could do that, especially because it had no dialogue in it virtually. I've been you know, commended and told off in equal measure for the amount of words that I write in a script. And, um... <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. Oh, which side of that do you come down on then, Laura? <laughs> both, both, actually. <laughs> the amazement and the horror when it comes to scheduling. <laughs> so, yeah, I wanted to tell the story with no words just to prove that I could. So I came up with this idea of underground barnacle boxing with a twist. Yeah, and Fred came on he really liked it and he wanted to co-direct, which I found a very useful thing because he's I'm very not technical. I know nothing about cameras or anything like that. Um, I know what I want, but I don't know how to ask for it in certain ways. He was very useful to me 
as a kind of technical liaison between me and the camera team. Fred's always kind of got what I wanted. So it was, it was a very nice, fruitful partnership. Is there anything Fred can't do? He turns up as, say, co-director there. I've seen him as editor on other projects with Brainhound and composer. I mean, he's a composer. He's great. He started out as a composer, then went into editing. I mean, Corinthians is the only thing he's ever directed, apart from the one cute little shot that he did in France on his mum's farm. He's one of those guys, as, as a technical being, he can learn virtually anything really quickly, like in a day or two. You know, when I came to him with my first rubbish little short, I didn't know how to get it off the camera. <laughs> and uh, he's like, give it to me. And he did it like in a night and he edited it by the next day. And I, I didn't even ask him to edit it. I just wanted it off the camera. I was like, wow, okay, brilliant. You can be my editor from now on then. <laughs> yes. Tell me he's one of these people that doesn't need sleep. He doesn't like sleep that much. Well, he does. He likes sleeping, but he doesn't sleep till about five or six in the morning. And then he sleeps till, well, he doesn't now. Back in the day when we used to live together in a weird little flat, he would he would be up till five in the morning and then sleep till like two in the afternoon. But now he's full time editing on feature films and stuff, so he's he's up at, at eight or nine like a normal human being. <laughs> <laughs> and where can people watch Corinthian? It's on my website, password protected, but the password is on my website also. So but you can you can see it. The, the password is the very clever core <laughs> C O R. It's on my website, markacbrown.com. Right. That's one I will check out as well. And I'm sure I'll listen as well. So we've got to talk about it. Stained. Where on oh. earth did that idea come from? Kind of a dream stroke nightmare, I guess. I just had this um, <laughs> dream one time <laughs> and I thought, oh, that's kind of fun. It just kind of came quite fully formed to kind of phrase. And, um, <laughs> oh. um, and, uh, yeah. So I kind, of, I kind of wrote it, I remember writing it in this cafe in Crouch End, giggling to myself, and then we recorded it as an audio thing for this podcast company that I used to be part of called Tin Can Podcast. Yeah, it became our most popular play at the time. So when Phil was looking for something else to do in the horror genre, Stained kind of jumped to the top of the pile as something that kind of might stand out among the crowd. Uh, it certainly does. Yeah, it's got a great cast as well. For something, the first thing that hits you is the theme of it, obviously. Um, <laughs> but again, Mike Shepard's in there. It's really good. I've got to say a big shout out to Fizz Marcus. I, I thought she oh, was yes. superb. Yeah, Fizz is great. I love Fizz. She's she's going to be on Harmony, hopefully, anyway, when it happens. Been looking to work with Fizz on a bigger thing for ages because she's such, she's such a brilliant actress with such a the most characterful face. So hopefully... Uh, Harmony will happen and uh, she'll get the screen time that she deserves. In Stained, I mean, she's there totally deadpan and you've got two actors around her just screaming at one another. Nothing seems to phase her. That's quite impressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we'd, we'd known each other for a little while by then, so she's, you know, she <laughs> she, uh, she, just, she just likes my sense of humour, I guess. And the most shocking film in San Francisco Comic Cons, twenty seventeen. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, a that's title. Probably our. I think that my most prized award for that film. I think um, <laughs> it's at the top. I noticed that. Yeah, we got we got a few little weird nods for various things. We got uh, nominated for the WTF award at the Genre Blast Film Festival. We got into the Sick and Wrong Film Festival, which is a. These are all fantastically <laughs> good festivals. American, obviously. <laughs> And, um, utterly justified, I think. <laughs> yeah, I was very proud of those awards. It was a good job you went shooting it in 2020. Where do you got the toilet roll? Yeah. Yeah. Not exactly, yeah. It's a, it's a cautionary tale now, that one. <laughs> <laughs> so, keeping Mike in mind, let's chat about Guardians. Now, I've just, in fact, Graham and Neil also have just seen this as well. Before we go into talking about it, what can you tell the listeners about the plot? Guardians is about two guys who are kind of thrown together to be guardians of a 200-year-old East End townhouse. The first obstacle is the fact that they don't really like each other. The second obstacle is that the, the house may be haunted or someone may be trying to get in or some nefarious things at play. The film builds up to a uh, cataclysmic sort of <laughs> finale, I guess. I just wanted somewhere quiet to think that was cost-effective. A great shame rests over this house. This house is a bloody monster. 
The massacre would last mere minutes. What the hell have you got yourself into? I know what you're thinking, and no, you're not looking after an Austrian sex prison. So there's someone else. Two guardians for every property. It's policy, son. This is your first house, yes. I can tell. What is this place? Have you been sneaking people in while I've been asleep? Time for bed. And where did you film it? Because that house is pretty impressive. That is yeah. it's my house. That is um, well, my, my, it's my partner's house. Anyway, she bought it a long time ago when houses were cheap, when the East End was not the uh, des res that it is now. So she's lived here for quite some time. Yeah, when I was thinking of locations to shoot, oh, can we do it here? Because this is big and cool and weird. Put it in the film and uh, there you go. <laughs> wow. So you were living in it as you were filming around yourselves? Yeah. It's funny because there was a guy living downstairs and um, he, he moved out because of it. We are, we left. <laughs> <laughs> he surprised me. Well, hey, we just have to, we were, we were going to shoot a feature film for 10 days and, and he moved out and very, very angrily. Um, but it wasn't a pleasant one. Most of the cast and crew stayed in the house for the duration of the shoot. And that wow. sign that's on the side of the house, that was sort of, I, I assume that was there anyway. It just happened to be there when you were filming. Billboard on the side of our house is there. It's still there. We were negotiating to of changing that situation. But um, the billboard is there. Fred also can do some special effects. So he superimposed the image of our fictional politician. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, I did assume. I did assume that. I must admit. Yeah. See, I was so hmm. taken in, I didn't even know that. <laughs> um, um, what I like about it, it started, and I thought, okay, there's references to curses and ghosts. This is going to be a horror comedy. This is going to go down that route, and it doesn't. It changes course on me. And, I, and it took me completely by surprise. I mean, how much fun is it to write a genre-swapping movie? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people hate it. <laughs> Particularly <laughs> because they don't, know, like, they don't know how to market things or they don't know how to handle it a lot of the time, you know. And But I, I like it. I like I like straddling many genres. Dead in the Vine definitely goes through two or three. So for me, it's just, it's just my natural way my brain works, I think. But I do enjoy it. I do like taking things off in a direction that hopefully will be mildly unexpected. You know, there's there's only so much you can do in this day and age to surprise people. I do my best. Because I saw the trailer uh, some time ago, and even that made me think this is going to be a horror comedy. I was thinking Shaun of the Dead uh, along those lines. Yeah. But it, it just goes somewhere completely different. And it, it is great. I, I find it great fun to be surprised. It's like the first time I watched From Dust Till Dawn, you know? Yeah. I, I had to nip out to the loo, come back, and thought I was in a different film. <laughs> it was half intentional, half kind of out of necessity that we had no budget for any kind of special effects or ghost kind of stuff or anything like that. Because, I mean, there was not there was a moment when I first thought the idea that we would somehow try and make it a haunted house, and I was like, well, we can't do that, though. I'll do something else. I'll, uh, I'll take it down a different road. And, uh, yeah, I think it worked out pretty well. I agree. I, I agree. I'm, I'm, so. Yeah, I'm being very careful because I don't want to spoil where this goes for anybody listening to this. But you can check this film out on Amazon Prime and I would highly, highly recommend it. It's really good. Again, we've got Mike in there, Mike Shepard. You were saying that he improvised a lot of his lines as you go through the film. Uh, well, not too many. There's a whole scene he improvised that we cut out. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of cracking lines in there that were that are pure Shepard. Um, he's a very good improviser. He could literally do that all day long. That is one of his one of his gifts. He's a he's a he's a stand-up comedian and uh, he's a writer for like he's a joke writer essentially for Radio Four and Have I Got News for You and all that kind of stuff. So he can he can mm-hmm. just churn it out top of his head. Amazing. And and the thing with his character, he is one of the most awful estate agents, a really devious <laughs> individual. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I thought he captured the estate agent perfectly. Yeah. Actually. yeah. yeah. Come, Come the end of the film, you almost feel sorry for him. Almost. <laughs> That's the brilliance of Mike, though, because he's Mike is also the most likable human being ever, <laughs> and uh, so I, I love giving him all these horrendous things to say. And whilst he still manages to make himself not truly abhorrent, you know, the audience is sort of way into the weirdness 
and I just want to clarify one thing. Uh, one thing else that I'm, I'm being very, very careful not to talk on plot on this, and also I want to get to talk about Dead on the Vine. But one final thing: was that David Whitney playing the bagpipes? Yes, yes, it is. If you go on Facebook and look him up, there's a video that's gone, you know, for Facebook fairly viral. This New Year's Eve gone, he basically took his bagpipes out because he usually plays like big things on New Year's Eve. That's one of his big paydays. He's playing these swanky members bars, New Year's Eve parties and stuff for his bagpipes. But that wasn't happening this year, obviously. So he just basically, because he's living with me now at the moment, so he just took his bagpipes out into the street and did a bit of a tour of the East End. It was amazing because it was, New Year's Eve was a bit of a damp squib, obviously, for most people. But to get all these people, socially distanced, obviously, in the lovely wide streets, coming out of their front doors and cheering and making everyone a bit, little bit happy. So there's a there's a video of him online doing that. Anyway, someone some someone's caught him like from a big high flat, and it's a cheery cheery little moment for what is otherwise yeah. a terrible thing. <laughs> you had him star in Dead on the Vines. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've worked with David a lot, so we've known each other for close to twenty years, and um, we, me and David were developing a play that was, um, from a character-wise point of view, similar to Dead in the Vine. When the film came up. He kind of just basically came from the play straight into the film. Laura, talking about Dead on the Vine, which you made during lockdown, and you sorted the locations out for that, am I right? I mean, it kind of came about because of the location, actually. Um, I'm very lucky to have a friend who owns a vineyard who's incredibly lovely, and he did mention that if we wanted to shoot film, we could use it. And then I was having a conversation with Mark, and Mark produced the script kind of out of having that conversation about making a film on a vineyard so I think that's the point where Mark you turned the play that you were working on into the film script that became Dead on the Vine so the location's amazing I mean it's so beautiful oh yes it's spectacular spectacular yeah and so I basically took these characters from the play and, and transplanted them into this sort of vineyard setting if you can imagine um it is a very gorgeous rolling countryside in southern England it's not far from the coast and it's just produces gorgeous English wine as well. So we had the luxury of shooting around this vineyard, which also had a hotel and restaurant area as well, but was shut, mainly shut for most of the time because of COVID. Do you want to give a shout out for the vineyard for anybody listening? Oh, yeah. Well, I could, couldn't I? That would be very nice of me. Yeah, um, it's called Tillingham um, and they produce incredible natural wine. It's near Rye in the south of England. It's beautiful. Actually, at uh, borders uh, next door to Paul McCartney, I believe. So it's a pretty nice spot. But we had a very, very lovely two weeks. I mean, not a lot of sleep and a lot of hard work, but it was pretty lovely, actually. Coming out of lockdown into a 77-acre vineyard, being able to wander around with the beautiful air and the, the visuals, it was, it was quite the antidote. Do you own all of this? Yes. It's beautiful. Quiet. I know. I wouldn't know what to do with all this space. You're from London. Yeah, how do you know? Well, people from London always say that. Before I talk about timekeeping on this, <laughs> what can you tell people about the plot of the film? How much do you want to reveal? Well, I mean, Dead on the Vine for me has always been a kind of, uh, when Mark showed me the script, I was like, wow, this is a good, darkly comic thriller. Um, and it's basically about these two guys that have been sent down from London on a job that goes horribly wrong. And we kind of joined them after that. And um, one of them had a fit and the other one had to pull over. And the only place he finds is a vineyard. And the vineyard's owned by these two women. And the two guys should be getting back to London. But a couple of other characters come in and everything sort of goes horribly wrong. I got confused. You had one of your turns. What's going on, Joni? Oh, Cora, um, this is Ellis and his friend Drayton. Drayton had a seizure in the car as they were passing, so they came in here. Sorry to impose. I didn't know where else to go. London. We were meant to go to London. And David Whitney, I take it, is one of the guys in the car, yeah? No, he's one of the ladies. Yes, OK. So let's talk about time. I, I'm fascinated the, on the timescale of this. So, so Laura, you, you found this location first. When would that be? About March, April time when we went into lockdown last year? No, we, uh, myself and Mark, I remember the day well. I was sort of sitting on my kitchen side, staring out the window, just 
looking forward to another afternoon of homeschooling, having all had all my production work cancelled. Mark and myself have been working on another project called Limpet, uh, which is kind of just put on hold for a bit. So when he called and we were both pretty frustrated about work and wanted to just do something positive, that's when the idea of the vineyard location came up. And then, so that was, I think it was about March the 25th, if I remember right. And uh, two weeks later, he sent me a script and I read it and I just thought, we could make this, we could actually really do this. So we did a bit of development on it through June and then the vineyard was due to open again at the beginning of August. So we had a deadline of uh, getting it filmed. So basically we went into pre-production I would say probably the beginning of July-ish and then started shooting on the 17th and we wrapped on the 30th with a day's break halfway through. So sort of two six-day blocks, really, to 12-day shoot. So you managed to complete before it opened again? Yeah, they did have a couple of pizza nights, uh, which we weren't actually aware they were going to do until a couple of days before that I then had to reschedule everything around, which was fun. And just random things like, you know, deliveries of massive vats for winemaking. It was fun actually scheduling around a kind of working farm because obviously we weren't paying them. So we didn't want to get in their way. So it was this kind of constant, movable beast when it came to where we wanted to film on the farm and what they were doing that day and if they were public in or not public in. And obviously all the COVID precautions as well. We took quite a lot of time trying to work out the best way to make it, the safest way to make it with everything else going on in the world. So, yeah, it was a bit mental. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that would be an understatement, really. I, I, I'm interested in what you say about the COVID safety precautions. We're, we've been on a few film sets. One of the things that will strike you is how people are working close together. You know, you sound people, obviously your actors in certain scenes. How do you get around that to make it COVID compliant? So we were really lucky with the location that we had. We were filming outside a lot. And then on top of that, the main room that we filmed in was a huge kind of restaurant space it was massive so there wasn't really need to get close to each other and also as well Mark and the actors had kind of already bubbled up a few weeks before when they were rehearsing in London so we kind of had that and then um, we just kept the crew really small stupidly small to be honest like because it actually I made a sort of decision where we were in terms of the film the type of film we were making I was looking at how we could get around kind of not having certain departments we would normally have. So altogether, to make this feature film, including the cast, there were 20 of us, which is tiny. And it meant that a lot of people, like my amazing production manager, Nathan, was doing about five jobs. And our incredible first AD, Jane, was just holding it all together. And, you know, Kieran, uh, the DOP, Kieran Coyle, was he had no money and no crew he had one trainee camera assistant and I have to say yeah it was pretty easy in terms of the amount of people for Covid precautions but in terms of actually making the film it was quite quite a challenge but everybody was up for it because to be honest everybody that came on board the pro- the project hadn't been working since February really so I think for a lot of us it was about just doing something positive at a time when not a lot was happening and we spent two weeks living on a vineyard. So, I mean, it wasn't that bad, you know, um, long days and hard work. But, you know, the Lots location made up, there was a little bit of drink, yeah. yeah. So when you got there, I mean, you had your script. And as you're saying, it was, it was challenging conditions. You had a, a scaled down crew. When you were filming, did you have to change anything around? Did it, did it impact upon you? in any way and in a sense the benefit of having a small crew and knowing that we had a real deadline like it wasn't like we could just go oh we'll just carry on filming past the beginning of August we actually had to finish at that point in order for the vineyard to have a deep clean in order to open to the public so um there was one weekend when we had one of our actors in and she was only there for two days and the weather was horrendous so we had to kind of relocate a scene um, and the amazing thing was, is James Offerst and Mark and Kieran, P.O.P., the three of them just made a really quick, logical decision about where to move it. You know, when we called it and we said it's just not safe enough to shoot where we were, we called it and it moved it into a, an interior. That's easier when you've got less people and you can quickly kind of, you know, for me, I could quickly look at 
the really exciting paperwork and health and safety things and kind of just move quite quickly and change everything around and yeah so some things I think being flexible is easier I think when you've not got a massive crew uh, but yeah I mean COVID wise I think we just made sure that when we were shooting in small spaces there was minimal crew and everybody was masked up and all that sort of stuff so it's challenging <laughs> you finished at the beginning of August and then it goes into the editing phase at that point so I basically wanted to bring another producer on because I thought it would be a real benefit to the film and I we cut um, a sort of teaser and I showed it to a producer called Julie Baines who has a company called Dan Films and she had already read the project I was working on with Mark, well, I still am working on with Mark Limpet and liked it. And so when she saw this, she was quite interested about coming on board. So I'm working with Julie and her colleague, Jonathan Taylor, to finish the production of the film, which for me is amazing because it means that I not only get the incredible production experience of Julie and Jonathan, but also her amazing post-production supervisor. And from there, we kind of, found an editor and we've we've got the most incredible editor Natasha and Ian as well who's doing music kind of moving we had a final scene shoot as well which we've actually just done today which is quite exciting what about the music aspect of this have you got a composer lined up for the film do you want to talk a little bit about Ian Mark because he Ian Arbor our composer apparently has been wanting to work with Mark for a while so he told me so um, yeah <laughs> Um, Ian's Ian's great. Ian, Ian Arbor, he's um excellent excellent uh, composer. I've known him for only a couple of years, really. We met at the, uh, the American Film Market over drinks and stuff. <laughs> we both liked doing that, so we just kind of wandered around the beach a lot and uh, went to some bars, got to know each other, and um, sort of stayed in touch. But I mean, he's he's had quite the career since then. You know, he he did the score for that the Bross documentary the Holiday Granger TV series, The Capture. Um, oh, yeah. And um, also The Proms, <laughs> the BBC Proms theme tune and stuff, and he's just won an award. He kind of came out of the blue, really, and said, oh, you've just finished the film. Do you, uh, do you need a composer? <laughs> it's like, yeah, well, we can't afford you. probably." But, he's, but he, was, he was very, he knew the situation. And again, you know, he wasn't working. So we had a chat, and he's like, yeah, whatever whatever we can do, we can do. Let's... Uh, Let's work something out, and we did. And uh, so he uh, he knocked out some absolutely fantastic music, and he's continuing to do so, and it's it's been lovely. So, what are your plans now with Dead on the Vine? Where where, where are we at this present time? Yeah. Well, we just finished was essentially the final scene um, of the film today. Yeah. So we need to get that to the editor, Natasha, and we'll we'll stick that on. And um, we've got another day of just um, getting some pickups of cutaways and all that kind of stuff um and then yeah we'll just have to see how quickly we can uh get the edit done and get it ready for sales and distribution and all that shenanigans hopefully there'll be festivals and stuff as well but you know you can't tell at this time can you i mean the way things are going uh touching wood come the end of well come spring we sh- should see things start back opening up again. Yeah, I hope so. That's 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 the aim. That's the the, the fervent fervent hope that I have. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, me too. I wasn't just laughing. I promise. I really do hope that. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm also trying to be like that kind of yeah. Okay, we'll see how it goes. It's uh, yeah. Without asking for too much detail, is this another film that ju- that jumps genres, or is it? When you see it, you think, okay, this is all of a piece. It's a much more serious film than Guardians. Definitely, it definitely weaves its way through through a couple of three little um, little paths that uh, hopefully are reasonably unexpected. And uh, yeah, I mean, you would say so, wouldn't you, Laura? That's it's not. Yeah, no, completely. And also, as well, I think one of the things about Dead on the Vine is because of the location and the way that Kieran and Mark talked quite a lot about style of it before we started making it and uh, a lot of references in terms of the scope of the vineyard because it's a big space and that kind of it's very different from I think Mark you'd agree the stuff you've made before in terms of that kind of vista that you have with that environment and even the filming that we did today is on quite a lovely kind of like large sort of location and I think 
it's different and I think that it's got a really lovely tone to it and yeah it does I mean it's looking beautiful at the moment and I'm excited to see it want to go through a grade because it already looks really good. Well how long are we staying in this glamorous little red spot because they've got a thing tonight. Thing? Yeah wine tasting. I've never been to a wine tasting. That's because you don't like wine. Did they give you the freedom of the, the vineyard or you were only allowed in certain parts of it? Yeah, pretty much all of it, really, didn't they? Yeah, I mean, including the fact we, um, I, I had all these grand ideas about how we'd sort of, you know, uh, manage to eat our meals outside. And by the end of it, we'd completely taken over their restaurant and kitchen. As I say, the vineyard owner, Ben Wilgate, is a very good friend. And he was incredibly supportive about the project because he knew kind of my desire to produce something like this. And it just, it was the timing, really. So. They allowed us to pretty much film anywhere we wanted as long as it kind of worked around what they were doing, which is why my lounge floor looks kind of covered in scene cards for quite a few days before the shoot, keep shifting them around, depending on what call I got from the manager at the vineyard to tell me something else had been booked in. So then I had to reschedule everything else again. And the yoga. <laughs> oh, yeah, the yoga that popped up. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> just. Yeah, so it was quite a challenge because obviously, yeah, you do have that thing normally on a film where you, the location is yours and you pay for it and then that you can do with it what you want, when you want. So this was quite a different experience. And I think it's worth another shout, shout out of the vineyard's name and where, where it is, Laura, if that's OK. Gorgeous Tillingham in Peasmarsh in East Sussex in the south of England. I mean, he sells his wine, Tillingham wine, all over the world. They're doing very, very well. There are big articles in, in lots of uh, newspapers about how wonderful Tilling and wine is. Yeah, it was the 11th most beautiful vineyard in Europe in the time yeah, well. something like that. It was. Yeah, I think they called him something like the Willy Wonka of wine. Um, <laughs> that's what we filmed. Well, I'm pleased to say we have one of the members of the Cheltenham Wine Club on this. Uh, ah, in the there you um, go. Yeah, guilty as charged, and I've yeah. just taken the name of the uh, of the winery down, so I shall be investigating that when we're off air. <laughs> yeah, have a look on the website. So it's always fun watching the way they make wine as well, because it's natural. But anyway, I won't, I won't go on too much about wine. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'll be wanting a glass. Uh, right. Now, earlier on, you mentioned a film called Limpid, which is uh, another film that you're planning to make together? Yeah. It's a comedy horror, and um, it's... It's a big project, actually. There's quite a lot of special effects in this one. Yeah, there's a there's a few bits in terms of we've got a, some of it sorted in development, but I'm really excited about it. It's a it's a really fun script, and it's won quite a few awards. Mark, I think you probably got the list. <laughs> well, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna list them. But yeah, I mean, it's it's done well on the festival circuit. You know, when like when Guardians was kind of coming to its festival run end, I'd kind of I was suffering from festival withdrawal. And it was just before I met Laura, really. So I started entering it into festivals, the scripts, and and it did well. Yeah, it got into quite a few and uh, won four or five best script awards. Won the um, best script at the British Horror Film Festival, and what was it made the gold list as well? Isn't it? Made the gold list at the British Independent Film Festival. Uh, and these are awards for unproduced scripts. Yeah, I know there are lists on like. The ten best un, uh, unmade scripts. I didn't realise there were they were there were awards and competitions for um, unmade scripts. Yeah, it's quite the thing. It's quite the thing. There we go. I've learnt something else on this. Thank you for that. Um, how, how many actually end up getting produced? Do they, you know, do one in a hundred or? I'd imagine it... not many. Um, oh, okay. I mean, I've done the circuit quite a lot over the last four or five years, and yeah, the scripts that I know that have won awards are most of them ninety plus percent are still unproduced but being a good script does not mean it's easy to make you know that's the difference between winning a best unproduced script and winning a best script for something that's been produced is the uh produced script is possibly not as good as the unproduced script but uh cheaper and easier to make <laughs> yes very much so did you submit the script for stained into one of these uh competitions before it was made no didn't really know about the whole script. I didn't really look into the um, sort of script competition elements until much later after Stained because I was just busy with films, you know. So it was only, like, like I say, it was because Guardians had kind of come to its 
an end of its festival run. Stained had come to its end of its festival run. And I was like, what am I going to do with my life? Then I realized there's all these script competitions in these really good festivals. So I started entering a few of those and uh, did, did pretty well. There's no point asking when you're planning to make it because it all depends on the current COVID situation, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. no, it does. But we've also been talking, Mark and myself, we've been talking about potentially um, pushing another project forward before Limpet, actually, um, just something that's maybe a, a bit smaller. Um, not that I've read the script yet. Our experience of just making Dead on the Vine and, and getting that shot how we did, I mean, obviously this one, it would be nice to ha- have it financed before we go into production. But um, I do love paying people when I can. I think that it would be nice to do a project maybe before Olympic, but who knows? Like, it, things never happen in the order you think they will. Yeah, exactly. We're kind of pushing a few projects, and you know, some one one will get legs and one won't get legs. You know, it's it's you can never tell in this world. Like, say, Dead in the Vine got made that didn't exist, like literally in my brain nine months ago. It was not there. So it's you know you, you don't know what's going to happen. There was another project which you only wrote. You had no other connection to a film called Shooting Paul. Um, yeah, yeah, I was a kind of writer for hire for that one. It's, um, a gangster comedy, it's part of a series of gangster comedies set around this guy, this character called Max Mayfair, played by Armand Asante, who you'll know from Sidney Lumet's Q and A or Carl Reiner's Fatal Instinct, Judge Dredd with Sylvester Stallone. He's the baddie in that. And I, the jury. Oh, yeah. yeah. So it stars him and um, a variety of good old boys who are, yeah, it's kind of a fun knockabout comedy about these aging gangsters living in London That's that's been made, that's been shot. And um, because it's a series of films, they're trying to figure out the best ways to, uh, to distribute it, I guess. I don't know. We'll wait and see when, when that one uh, appears. One of the things we're going to be talking about uh, quite a lot through 2021. We just had our first show out on it. It's the future of cinema. With cinemas being hit quite hard with COVID, the rise of the streaming services, Disney being three, four years ahead where they plan to be, Netflix having a record year. Where do you see the future of filmmaking? And you know, do you make for a particular market or would you just look at what offers are out there for you? It's hard to say, isn't it? At, at the moment... Things are going okay for us because we've made a film and and it's in a marketable sort of genre. And hopefully we'll continue to do so. And if we can find the finance, and that's that's always the main thing of like what people want to give you money for. And you can't predict that, really. It's very difficult. Future of cinema is, I don't know, it's a different thing, I guess, because I think this whole situation is going to have an increase in independent film because... Those are the films like us that I know several of my friends that have gone and made feature films during this time because they've been able to. And so there's going to be a bit of a, not a deluge, but there's going to be a nice little sort of spike of indie films coming soon because all the big films shut down. They can't afford the insurance and all that kind of stuff. It's interesting. I don't know. I, mean, I, can't, I, can't, I can't predict it really. Go no, and I don't think anyone can. I mean, you know, everyone. Do you know what? For as long as I can remember, like, I mean, I've been working in production for like over twenty years, and everybody's always been talking about the future of cinema. And I think the thing is about cinema is people that go to the cinema, they just love it. They love the experience and the whole kind of, you know. I mean, I think I think they're like me. Like it's just a magical place to to watch a film. But I would say that you know, from my point of view, looking at it from the other side, the online streaming services, what they do provide is they tend to take a lot of risks on projects. And they tend to, you know, I mean, I was reading an article about the Queen's Gambit the other day, which is like one of the most watched things on Netflix. And apparently it took like 30 years to make. No one wanted to commission um, a project about chess. And yet the online streaming services will take risks on stuff like that. And I think I think that it's, it's left an interesting space for, you know, kind of different films and, and different, you know, TV programmes. I mean, look at kind of Guardians, for instance, being taken on online by the likes of Amazon and it's uh, on iTunes and Sky. So projects like that, like small independent projects, I think, have a greater chance of being seen because of the online streaming services and what they offer. You want both those parts of the industry. I, I mean, everybody loves to see the work they've made on a big screen in a cinema and everybody I know that loves cinema wants to go and watch projects in that surrounding. 
but also it's nice to see more projects and lots of variety uh, being made into missions in other in other ways as well so it's quite interesting I think it's quite exciting and it's been interesting watching I'm a member of Basta Cruz here and it's been interesting watching the talk about those sorts of things coming into 2021 after Covid and seeing what's getting going and what projects people are working on and all that kind of thing. Again interesting what you say there Laura certainly about Amazon Prime you know you could I watch Guardians on there we are local film director Phil Stubbs his film Last Chances is on there we're seeing them here but I know people over in the States picking them up and they wouldn't normally get a chance to see these films. No, absolutely no, not. not at all. And I think actually, you know, all my filmmaker friends, when they've made projects in the past, they've had a cinema release, which has been so short. And if I've missed it at the cinema, then I sort of have to go and get it like on a DVD or something, because there's nowhere else to view it. So it's interesting, this kind of other, this other life, I think, that, those independent films um, and productions are having. So I don't know, it's exciting. It's been a really, really hard year for production, but you know, I think, I definitely think people are gonna be desperate for content. There's opportunities out there if you're willing to take risks and just, yeah, be a bit mad and work. My big worry is that I would predict that come March and April, you know, the, the, the gloves will come off and the, the, the films come out again. And there's such a backlog of the blockbusters that they could cut everything else out in the cinema. And I don't want to see that. I want to see the little films like something like Unhinged from last year or The Broken mm. Hearts Gallery. You know, I want to see those films. The hope is, is that those smaller independent cinemas will be able to survive, which has probably been through one of the toughest years of their lives. And that they will still hopefully be able to show those smaller films that there is definitely an appetite for. Like even my non-film friends, you know, do enjoy seeing different projects now because they've been opened up to a whole new world of not just blockbusters. Some of the independent cinemas have actually done better out of this, not better, but as in they've survived better than the chains have. The chains have kind of all shut down because they've got so much staff and they've got so many overheads and they've got so much rent and all this kind of stuff. Whereas the independent cinemas, they've got a bit more autonomy over themselves and they've managed to sort of adapt into it. You know, I mean, I live quite near the Genesis and um, that's done, I mean, I'm, I'm sure it's struggling, but it's still, it's been open. It's doing, it's, it's hot desking its bar, you know, it's doing all sorts of really innovative and cool things and then showing big films, small films and changing its times to fit more films in and all this kind of stuff. I think... There's a hope for at least some of the independent cinemas that because of their adaptability and their kind of innovations that they will hopefully be a bit of a beacon for, for us for the future. And I am quite pleased that the government has given out some grants to some of these independent cinemas. Yeah. No, I know, but yeah. <laughs> so just sort of talk a little bit about Harmony, if I may. You were the writer on that one, Mark, and hopefully that will start filming in the spring in Gloucestershire. How much involvement will you have in that, or will that be Phil and Tim's project? Yeah, I mean, it's really Phil and Tim's. I've been pretty busy with Guardians and developing stuff with Laura and a variety of other jobs like shooting Paul and stuff. So I couldn't really get as involved as I have done in, in mine of Phil's previous projects. So I wrote the script. Uh, me and Phil decided we wanted to do a, uh, a ghost story, and I had this, I had this idea about this sort, of, this sort of musical haunting, as it were. And then Phil has his Phil has the farm, and we kind of just developed this idea. And uh, I went off and wrote it, and, um, well, they've been trying to get it get it going. And uh, it's been unlucky. It's been unlucky. But um, I'm, sure, I'm sure it'll uh, find its spot eventually once all this madness calms down. Graham and I did a, a show, or we were on a show over Christmas for BBC Radio Gloucestershire, and we were asked, you know, what what the things are you most excited for in the new year? And we mentioned Harmony, and uh, a few people have been uh, phoning up or writing in and asking, oh, what's this? When's it taking place? So uh, there's definitely an interest out there for this film. Oh, great. As far as I know, Phil is, Phil's working hard on um, getting it all prepped and ready, and so hopefully once the the window opens for them to shoot it it'll go 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 given how hard working both of you are during this lockdown i'm too frightened to ask this last question 
but I will ask it. <laughs> Is there anything else you, you guys have on the go? As if, like, you're not doing enough already? Um, well, me and Laura, like, they were developing a script. I've written 64 pages of it so far, um, which we may shoot at some point um, this year. So we're just, I'm just working on the, trying to get that first draft finished. It's been a it's been a bit of a, a slog just because of Christmas and because of the ever changing uh, landscape that we live in. So hopefully I'll get that done in the next couple of weeks, and me and Laura can start having some actual development time on something for once, <laughs> and um, <Yay>. and, <laughs> and all being well with the the COVID gods, then we'll um, we'll be able to shoot it at some point later in the year. Um, other than that, I'm I'm just writing some stuff for some friends and things, you know, some short films, some uh, some theatre pieces. So well, I've got, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, uh, kind of covered the stuff we're doing together, and then I'm kind of dusting off a couple of projects that I love. Um, that I had uh, with development money on actually uh, a while ago. So I've got a political thriller which I love, uh, which is based around a documentary I produced years ago for Carlton Television. And then I've got um, another project, which I think I'm going to do as well. So I'm trying to I'm trying to get together my development projects and have a little look for some writers for stuff. Um, and then I've got another project with a director called Ben Filling, uh, which is actually a kind of a bit of a mixed genre um, one, which has some animation in, and it's kind of documentary based about uh, an incredible pianist called Alan Schiller, who is a child prodigy and was the first British person to be invited to go and study at the Moscow Conservatoire during the Cold War. Um, wow. And it's quite an interesting story. So, yeah, I've got a couple of things going on. So it's just trying to, basically, at the moment, with the, with the kind of lockdown and stuff, it's trying to continue work and do the stuff we're passionate about, like alongside, you know, lockdown and, and homeschooling children and, you know, picking up other work as well. So, yeah, it's busy, but... Busy's good, right? Mm. Absolutely. Busy is sanity at the moment, I think. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> definitely. Um, no, it's really good. I think that's why I've uh, got back into my political thriller. I do love a thriller, so um, that's quite nice as you, well. Having a political thriller in the age of Trump and Johnson, I mean, oh, how far yeah. can you go? <laughs> it's actually set in the early 90s about Gulf War syndrome, so uh, it's, it's a period piece. That gets you around that one, then. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, can I say to, to both of you, the best of luck with all those projects. For anybody who hasn't seen Guardians yet, I would urge you to check it out on Amazon Prime. It gets a three thumbs up from uh, all the members of the At The Flicks team. Can't wait until Dead on the Vine is out there because that sounds excellent as well. Laura, Mark, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having us.